Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 20. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. Tonight's story will span the length of two episodes and comes from Horror Hill newcomer M.C. Tucker. It concerns some of the more unsavory aspects of human hierarchy and the lengths to which one man will go to seek favor in the eyes of another. Shall we? Oh, I think we shall. But first, sing along if you know the words. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. That crow, the one sitting outside your window, the one that seems to be watching you. No, no, don't get up. Stay still. You don't want him to notice that you notice him. If you're lucky, he'll just fly away. The darkness has eyes everywhere. She found me. Now she's found you. If I were you, I wouldn't stray far from home for a while. Just to remind you, tonight's story will span the length of two episodes. So don't forget to tune in next week for part two and the thrilling conclusion. But until then, let's get started. Without further ado, From author M.C. Tucker, I give you part one of Accomplice. 
John began working in my office in late October. He started on a Thursday. He sat at the desk opposite mine, which had been empty since Julia had gone on maternity leave. He turned on the computer and slit his satchel, which had the name John Evans embossed on the side, under the table, and got to work. He was older than me by maybe 15 or 20 years, enough of a difference that I saw him in that way that I once saw adults when I was a teenager. He had the self-assuredness and confidence that came with having established himself more firmly in the world than I had. I watched him for a while, glad to have a distraction from my work. He looked like he would be tall when he stood. His hair was neat and dark, with small sprays of white at the temples, and he had deep brows that kept his eyes in perpetual shadow. He was professional, stern. What I found most interesting about this stranger was that he sat with completely perfect posture. He never hunched. He never leaned against the backrest. I tried to imitate him and failed miserably. The first time I found myself slouched in my chair without even realizing what I was doing. The second time, I tried to pay attention, but eventually submitted to the growing ache in my back and stomach. I swung to and fro for a moment, letting the discomfort settle. When I looked up again, he was looking directly at me. I remember that under his gaze my stomach dropped as though I was in serious trouble. My bowels felt loose, and my skin felt hot. Any smart comment that I might have tried on was out of reach. Can I help you? They asked in a deep voice. I tried to pull myself together and smiled warmly. Are you new here? I asked, feeling stupid. Of course he was new. I'm Ethan. John, right? His slight smile confirmed my assumption, and when he got back to work, I did as well. He next spoke in the tea room during lunch. I sat beside him, wanting to leave a better impression than the immaturity I was worried he'd seen earlier. I wanted to impress upon him how clever I was, how I, too, was someone worthy of respect. Something about him left me wanting his approval. But he stood as I sat. He towered over me for a moment, a stern Goliath, before turning to the mundane task of washing his plate and cutlery. He had finished his lunch, and I found myself disappointed. Would you like a coffee? I asked getting back up to prepare one for myself. I would, he replied as he dried his knife and set it back in the drawer. I poured a second mug and he sat back down to drink it as I ate. After a quiet few moments, he asked me to repeat my name. He asked where I'd attended graduate university and how long I'd been at the company. I answered his questions eagerly, and before I knew it, my hands were jittering around my third cup of coffee and we'd long overstayed our lunch hour. And John knew far more about me than I knew about him. That Thursday began two months of lunch hour conversations. We spoke about the world and the sky and everything in between. I no longer paid attention to the movements of my colleagues. They may as well have been on another planet. Instead, I focused on the swirl of sediment at the bottom of my cup on John's large hands as they rested on the table, as he described more lives than one man could surely have lived. My first impression had been right. He had taught, not just here in Vancouver, but also overseas. He taught English to nurses in Peru, construction to young men in the Cook Islands, and mathematics to engineering students in Iran, countries whose names seemed tinged with magic as far away from the deepening cold and dark of winter as was possible. When I asked him why, why on earth had he come here, sought a job in this small engineering firm whose only claim to fame was their design of a type of bolt used to attach propellers to icebreakers and spend his days amongst some of the most sallow and pallid people alive, when he could have been exploring the deserts of Chile, 
John sat back in his chair for the first time since I'd known him. I'm looking for something, he said. I think that the last time I was truly happy was in that small tea room, sitting on the rigid chair at a round melamine table, having lunch with John. My eagerness to impress him hadn't faded. I was eager to please him, too, and he always accepted the freshly brewed cup of black coffee before allowing me to pick his brains. I began to look forward to work. I got up earlier in the morning than I ever had before to allow myself enough time to ensure that my hair was neat and my shirt was evenly pressed. I began to daydream about leaving the office with John, about him asking in his deep, even tone for me to join him on one of his adventures. This world was going white and gray with the deepening snow, but my imagination was full of the rich, red of deserts, the intense purple of yuccaranda flowers, and skies that were only ever a stark, never-ending blue. Things began to change during Friday night drinks in mid-December, which he rarely attended, and I always did. I don't remember what the disagreement had been about. That detail was meaningless, insignificant even in comparison to the event that followed. What I do remember was drinking a few more beers than I ought to have while out with work colleagues. John made some comment, and we had a back and forth for a minute that ended in my making a weak joke at his expense. But the others had laughed, and I had laughed too loudly, because for the first time since meeting John... I fleetingly felt as though I had the upper hand in the relationship. The night came to a close, as did all Friday night drinks, with everyone remembering that they had families that waited on them and weekend chores to achieve that would be even more intolerable with the dry horrors. John offered me a lift home, as he had not drunk more than the one beer he'd been nursing. I followed him out into the bitter cold and around the side of the bar to the parking lot, where the snow was made yellow by the dim lighting. John had turned to me then, so suddenly that I had no chance to pull away. With one hand, he gripped my jaw, and even then I thought that it was an odd place to grab. My neck, my shoulder, yes, his large hand to my chest maybe. They all seemed to make more sense than my jaw. He pushed me against his car, bending me back over the bonnet. I'd fought for a moment, and in that moment, I genuinely feared for my life. Who was this man, really, but a stranger? Someone in whose proximity I spent my working day. My heart raced, and my rapid breathing was made visible by the cold. His body pressed firmly against mine as he bent over me, and I remember thinking that he wasn't just strong. He was too strong. I worked out, yes, but with little effort he had subdued me like a rag doll. Do not ever mock me again, he said. His breath was hot in my face, and his words were sharp enough to cut through the wind. If I hadn't gone to the bathroom before leaving, I would have shamed myself. I agreed quickly. I apologized with the attempt to apologize a hundred times over. But his hand left my face. He stepped away and into the car. And I straightened and took a moment to still my shaking hands before sitting in the passenger seat. John had driven me home without another word. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else, so finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. 
It's just what happens when you two find a new place together. But you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them. Because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet, so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It didn't occur to me to wonder how he knew where I lived. Later that night, wound in my blanket, I thought over the encounter. Again and again I dissected it in my head. My small win, so sad and so pathetic that I'd been ashamed of my joke before I'd even finished it. The inane laughter of my colleagues had only buoyed me because of the three pints I'd drunk. Quickly and on an empty stomach. I thought of John's hand on my jaw. It hadn't hurt at the time, but now it ached. So firm his grip had been. I thought of his body pressed against mine, and there, in the darkness of a long winter's night, my fear turned to arousal. I wasn't gay, I was sure of that. As I took myself in hand, it wasn't John's looks or form that I thought of. It was his domination of me. His facile demonstration of strength that fed the fire of my masturbation. So, it was then, in my moment of personal satisfaction, that I first submitted to John. I watched Monday approach with apprehension and eagerness. My parents noticed my distraction when I visited them in drawings two hours inland of where I lived. They commented on it, and I explained it away with excuses of projects and looming deadlines. They told me that I was pushing myself too much, that I was working too hard, and I let them believe that. Believe the illusion of their clever son, the engineer. No, he's not married yet. He has given us no grandchildren. But my, isn't he ambitious? When Monday arrived, I was at the office early. John wasn't there. I looked up every time the door opened, but John never appeared. John never came back to work. I spent far more time than I should have looking at his empty seat. The first few days I attributed to illness... Other people in the office had come down with colds, and clearly even he wasn't immune to the virus that someone had contracted from their grubby children. But the few days turned into a week, then two weeks. They must have taken leave over Christmas, I reasoned, gone to see family. They surely had parents that must be elderly and frail. Children shared with an ex-wife, though he had never mentioned any. Maybe he'd gone far south, to a white sand beach where winter was just a bad memory. I found myself walking past his desk to get to mine. It meant going the long way around the office, unnecessary, and a few of the others did notice my change in routine. I ran my fingers over the smooth laminate as I passed it. I looked for personal items, but there were none. He had seemingly left nothing of himself there save the computer, which the company owned, and a clean mug, which was a generic one, which there were dozens in the tea room. 
I began to worry that he wouldn't be coming back. I began to agonize about my stupid joke, my stupid comment that had turned things so sour. His absence was surely my fault, some cruel punishment that he was exacting on me. I only started to think that something might be seriously wrong when I asked the others about him at the Christmas party on the Friday before we broke for the Christmas week. The few I asked didn't seem to know who I was talking about, and even when I pointed to the chair he'd occupied, they mostly shook their heads. Was it an older man? Susie from accounts had asked to my growing frustration. Gray-haired, right? Used to, um, use a walking cane. She'd mimicked using a cane for a few moments before finding the word. I'd been aghast at her, and she seemed to become uncomfortable, making an excuse to leave me and engage our boss, Thomas, in conversation. I no longer felt like drinking. I sat in John's vacant chair, going through the drawers for any evidence that I'd missed on my previous searches. Again, I found nothing. Christmas Day, I spent with my family, with my older brother who had a successful career in marketing that was far more lucrative than my own. He had found a lovely wife and had two lovely children and used the time between opening presents and lunch to announce that they were expecting a third. And my sister, the lesbian, she managed a successful gallery and brought in tow her girlfriend, who was simultaneously extremely attractive and a little standoffish, and I couldn't help but both desire and despise her. On Boxing Day, I made my excuses, and despite my parents' guilt-inducing protests, made my way back to the city. I didn't go straight back home. I drove around for a while, watching the snowfall and the quiet streets until I found myself back at the bar. It was open, but I didn't go in. I was plenty warm in my coat and gloves. Instead, I walked out to the parking lot. I studied the area as though searching for some clue as to the whereabouts of my colleague. There was nothing to find, so I started to walk. I'm not sure how long I roamed the streets. There were enough odd people about that I stayed alert and on edge. I studied all of their faces, hoping to find one I recognized. But I didn't find him. He found me. The silver car pulled up before me as I waited for a pedestrian signal to flash in my favor. The window was up, and I only saw myself in the reflection. But I knew who it was. I opened the door and slid into the passenger seat. Hello, Ethan, John said. On the drive, I asked him where he'd been. He didn't answer my questions, just fixed his attention on the icy road. I studied his stern profile as he drove. His silence unnerved me. My last encounter playing over and over again in my mind. I was both glad to see him and apprehensive. I kept thinking about the last time I'd seen him, of his moment of brutality. Never before had I had my personal space and my freedom of movement so bluntly torn from me. Never before had I feared for my own physical safety, and being so close to him reminded me of the panic that had flooded me. He intimidated me. He took me to his house, a sizable two-storied thing far out of the city, just past a town called Hemming. No other properties approached it, only a large garden with a low fence and paddocks that had been left to overgrow. He quietly invited me in, offered me a glass of wine, and we sat to talk. Our conversations began again as though there had never been a pause, except that now we weren't constrained by the need to return to work, to submit progress reports and leave the building at closing time. We spoke deep into the night, Everything he said was interesting, and his every tiny observation carried a profundity that unsettled me. Over and over again, he would change the way I looked at the world in some small way. His stories elated and crushed me by turns. 
I hung on to his every word as though I was in a religious fervor, which, in a way, I guess I was. When the sun began to rise, he told me that it was time to sleep, and my disappointment at this inconvenience of biology must have been evident. He offered me a sleeping tablet and a guest bed, and I accepted both. I slept the most soundly I had in months. I was aware of no part of the day, of the light, of the comings and goings of John. When I woke, it was night again, and he had prepared dinner and opened another bottle of red wine. I ate and drank, surprised that I was beginning to enjoy the taste of the wine, having spent my youth only drinking beer. We spent the hours in the same way as we had the night before. John became extremely animated, almost agitated as he told me about the months he'd spent living with the small tribe in eastern Africa. He told me the story of the tribe's efforts in speaking to their dead, of the sacrifices that the savages made to lure ancestors back from their peaceful sleep, how the rites had been interrupted when local missionaries having learned the practices, became horrified and had brought outside law into the village to interrupt them. Just think of what they might have learned if not for the meddling of lesser men, he cried, taking my hand and clutching it between his own. I'd become frightened then, not because of his story, as I thought he must be joking about his belief in it, but because he held my hand so tightly that I could feel the small bones deforming. His grip was far too firm, far too strong. My hand was being crushed in a vice, and when I gave a small gasp of pain, he let go. The incident ended my second night with John. Again, the offer of a sleeping tablet. I accepted, both seeking the wonderfully dreamless sleep and knowing that I would struggle to wind down from the excitement that John stirred in me without it. The third night was the same again. I asked again where he'd been for those few weeks, but again got no actual answer. Attending to some business, he told me. Other questions occurred in the back of my mind, but they never came to my lips. How could you have experienced so much in one life? How did you know when and where to find me? Or had that just been a happy coincidence? How was it that when you paced, you seemed to grow, so that your head almost scraped the ceiling, that you filled the room and all I could know was your presence? I didn't ask these questions because I didn't want to interrupt him. I didn't want to divert the natural flow of the conversation, which was beginning to feel as necessary as breathing. I was in complete and utter awe of John. In my secret heart, there was a blend of respect, fear, and yes, love. I never looked up to another as I looked up to him. He again offered the sleeping tablet, and I swallowed it with a sip of wine. This time, it had come earlier than dawn, and I wasn't sure I needed it, feeling that I may be getting used to a nocturnal schedule. But it was already pushed free of its foil blister and extended to me on John's hand. So I took it. I assumed that he'd become tired, that he wanted to retire to sleep. I started to get up to go to bed, but John sat down in the armchair opposite mine and continued to speak. I leaned back and let his words wash over me. He started to talk about the concept of followership. He spoke at length about how without followers, a leader could not lead, and how any important messages he might have would go nowhere. Words spoken into a void have no power regardless of how powerful they might have been, how a followership begins with the first follower, who is as important as the leader. The first follower validates a leader, drops the barriers to others who might look to that leader. With a following, there is no void, and the important messages can spread and have their impact. 
An interesting thing happens when you take a sleeping pill but don't go to sleep. Initially, there is incredible fatigue. Keeping your eyes open becomes a battle. If that battle is won, then staying awake becomes more manageable. Normal eyes become sleep eyes. And sleep eyes see the world through a distortion not meant for the conscious. Movement becomes exaggerated. Sounds become deeper. Smells more intense. Memory becomes impaired. The would-be sleeper becomes prone to suggestion. I absorbed everything John said. Under the pharmaceutical influence, his words became bigger, his ideas all-encompassing. I found myself nodding to everything. I felt his monologue in my heart. Yes. Yes, John. I will follow you. He asked me to follow him. I did, walking on unsteady legs through the house and down into the basement. When I saw the balding man chained to a peg on the ground, it wasn't as big a surprise as it should have been, thanks to the tablet. His face had been broken and was smeared with clots. His small eyes were bloodshot. He looked like a monster, and his piggish gaze was on me as squeals came around the fabric shoved in his mouth. John turned me from the sight and enclosed me in his arms, held me against his body. Surrounded by warmth, I could imagine that the gagged man wasn't there. Instead, I melted, trusting in John's strength to keep me solid. In his deep voice, John told me that the man was a threat, a threat to him and a threat to me. That, as his first follower, it was my duty to remove threats. And, in return, he would lead me. He would love me. There was nothing I wanted more. Those words took hold in my altered mind stronger than any I'd heard before. When he pressed the knife into my hand, I took it. When he turned me by my shoulders and instructed me to put it into the man... I did it. Before the blood had finished flowing, he was directing me back up the stairs, helping me wash my hands and tucking me into bed. My clothes were cleaned and folded on the end of the bed when I woke. I still felt tired, and the wine had left my mouth feeling dry and hairy, and I drank greedily from the bathroom tap. When I went downstairs to the kitchen, the wine and dinner were gone and John had replaced them with a small flask full of strong black coffee and the keys to my car. You should go back, he told me, or else you will be missed by your colleagues. Work doesn't go back until the third, I protested, dismayed at the idea of leaving. His home had become another world, a place where I could join in the adventures John had lived. I didn't want to go. He raised a dark eyebrow at me. It's the second today, he said. I frowned. It couldn't possibly be. I'd left my parents and been picked up by John on the 26th. Couldn't be the second. I'd been here for three nights, not seven. I took the liberty of collecting your car from the bar. He handed me my keys. You will go home. Go back to work for the week. Try it on. If you enjoy it, then stay. If you find that it no longer fits, then find me. I will be here. He said these last four words so firmly that it felt like a sacred promise. I wasn't able to disobey him. I closed my hand over the keys, patted my pocket for my wallet. John walked me to the door, and then I was out in the bright light of day. The sun reflected harshly off the hardened snow, and I was blinded, stopping to cover my eyes with my hand and let them adjust. When I lowered my fingers and looked around, I found my car parked beside the gate to the garden. When I passed a service station, I stopped to buy a paper, 
which confirmed that it was indeed the 2nd of January, 1989. It wasn't until I was almost home that I remembered that I had killed a man. When I got to my apartment, I ran in through the dark and vomited in the kitchen basin. I stood there heaving for a while, but nothing else came up. I pressed my face to the cool metal and let my memories rise. They were scattered and like still images, as though a light had flashed throughout, and I'd only caught the moments that the light had hit. Try as I might, I couldn't form a cohesive picture of what I'd done. I'm not sure what alarmed me more, the time I'd lost or the idea that I might have killed someone. Eventually, I got up and turned the lights on. I drank a few beers in quick succession and reasoned that I must have imagined it. We must have watched a horror movie or something similar. Maybe I'd fallen asleep and dreamt it. I pushed away the knowledge that there was no television in John's house. But even still, I couldn't have done it. Stab a man? It was laughable. I couldn't even eat a rare steak. But as I lay in my bed through the sleepless night, I could feel the knife in my hand. I knew its weight, the creases in the handle. I hadn't imagined that. Maybe I had done it. I was up early in the morning. I ironed my shirt and pants, packed a mustard and cheese sandwich, and got to the office. There was the usual wasted morning of catch-ups and the holiday debriefs. These all seemed to surround me, but not directly involve me. Not one of my co-workers asked how I'd spent Christmas. Not a one of them. But when had I last asked them anything? John and I had formed our own circle. It had been months since I'd genuinely taken an interest in any of them. I just didn't care about any of them. The only person whose company I'd enjoyed wasn't here any longer. It was out in the country, in an old house outside of Hemming. And now, none of them took an interest in me. I stopped doing my work. I just came and sat and looked at my notes in the computer. I submitted nothing. I didn't go to any meetings. I drank hot black coffee like I needed it to live. My co-workers went from casual indifference to outright avoiding me. So, I was just left to my thoughts. I dwelled on the piggish man in the basement for hours. His small eyes haunted me. I read the newspapers obsessively, expecting to read about the discovery of a body. But it didn't happen. These people who walked around me like they owned the place didn't seem to suspect a thing. They didn't know what I was capable of. But I kept going to work because that's what John had told me to do. I lasted out the week, most of which was spent picturing going back. Back to the house. Back to John. It wasn't just my fascination that drew me to him. Yes, I wanted to be there to hear everything he had to say, but there... There was more. John had a strength that I'd never encountered before. A strength that made me happy to forget the goings-on of the outside world. A strength that made me feel safe. A strength to which I was eager to submit. I didn't want to spend my life worrying and making choices and deciding where I wanted to be and who with. What I wanted was a complete lack of autonomy. John could take the wheel. I no longer wanted to drive. So, at closing on Friday, I went home and packed a small bag of clothes and drove out to the house past Hemming. The house was empty when I returned. I parked in the same spot beside the garden gate. For the first time, I wandered through it, trying to suppress my disappointment at not finding John waiting for my return. The prodigal son. Most of the bushes were wrapped in tarps and laden down with snow, but I think most of them were roses. 
I hope to be able to smell them from the guest room come summer. Around the back of the house, where a stretch of fencing was beginning to collapse and created a liminal space between the abandoned field and the neat garden, there was a disturbance in the snow. I bent to run my fingers through the dirt, but it was frozen. Only when I was up in the guest room and looking down at the patch did I realize that it was a rectangle, six feet long, two feet wide. In a moment, all of that suppressed panic rose in me. The man. I began to remember that night with a lot more clarity. How dried blood had surrounded his nose and how his left cheek had looked collapsed, which had made that eye oddly bulged. But again, my denial was stronger than my ability to accept the truth. The ground was frozen hard. There was no way someone could have dug through it to create such a large hole. It must have been disturbed by yard work, by a, an animal, the adjustment of the tarps, anything. And then John arrived home, and he was glad to see me, and I forgot about the man again. A week later, after a long night in conversation, he asked me if I would like to move here permanently, to give up my life in the city. I was eager to, yes. John was finally inviting me on that adventure. So the next day I went to Vancouver to wrap up my life there. As I passed through Hemming, I realized that I was being followed. The car had been behind me since I'd left. I hadn't noticed it until I was taking off from a red light, and I abruptly changed my path from straight to turning as I realized that I was about to take the wrong road. The car behind me, an old navy Plymouth, took the same sharp corner. For the next forty minutes, I kept my eyes on the rear vision mirror. I didn't try to shake my tail, and I wasn't confident enough to try any tricky driving on the icy roads. I wouldn't drive home, show this person where I lived. It occurred to me to turn back around, to seek shelter with John. John would keep me safe. But he had bid me leave, and I didn't want to disobey him. I didn't want to anger him. I also didn't want him to think less of me, to believe that I was weak. I formulated a plan. I would drive to the bar and park not in the parking lot around the back, but in one of the loading bays out the front. There would be only a few seconds where I might be alone in the street with this person. I would go inside and order a drink, sitting right at the bar where any interaction would be visible to all. If I was wrong about being followed, then I could just have my drink and go home. If I was right, then I could ask the bar staff to call the police. So, with my coat pulled tight and my heart fluttering in my throat, I pulled up. I ducked out of my car, pausing only to ensure that it was locked, and walked quickly into the warmth. I kept my head down. I didn't look to see if they had pulled up. I wasted no time in getting to safety. And I had been right. I watched the door as a man in his sixties, maybe his early seventies, came in and brought with him a gust of icy air. He wore a heavy coat made for a larger man, and a brown scarf sat bundled around his neck. Our gazes met across the bar. By the way his eyes had widened, I knew this was the person who had followed me. He made a beeline for me and I sized him up, wondering if he was planning on assaulting me. I felt much more confident, having seen his age, his small stature. I felt a little silly for having spent the last hour in such a state of worry. If I needed to, I could take this man in a fight. He stood beside me at the bar, shaking his gloves off and folding them into his jacket. Ethan Jones, my name is Heath Duncans. I've wanted to speak with you for a while. I'm very glad you pulled in here. We were interrupted by the bartender and the man ordered a whiskey on the rocks. He offered to buy me another drink, which I declined, 
Once she took his payment, he turned back to me. You followed me, I said accusingly. I saw you. You followed me from Hemming. What could you possibly want to talk about that much? Yes, I, I do apologize. I didn't mean to alarm you. I actually followed you from your friend's house as I couldn't talk to you there. He shook his head as he spoke, and in doing so, his scarf moved. It shifted down, revealing a white band across his neck. It took me a moment to place, and only so long because it seemed so out of place. You're, you're a priest, I said, and he nodded. Yes, Father Heath. He had half of his drink and sat in one of the bar stools. It angered me that he was acting so calmly. Didn't he know how much stress he'd caused me over the last hour? I sat up straighter, making myself taller than him. I looked down at him. How do you know who I am? I know you by virtue of your association with the man you've been living with. The things John had asked me to do came to the front of my mind and my mouth went dry. I gripped my beer and centered myself on the coldness of the glass. Do you know what type of person you've become involved with, Mr. Jones? You've been listening to Part 1 of Accomplice by author M.C. Tucker. M.C. Tucker comes from Western Australia, where she spends her days reveling in her chaotic work as an emergency room doctor. For part two and the chilling conclusion to M.C. Tucker's accomplice, be sure to tune in again next week. And your feathered friend out the window, don't worry your little head about him. He'll be there too. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bet you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. 
The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.